Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon and welcome to this week's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm your host, Ian Fisher, and I'm delighted to be recording the show on the 1st of June. The official start of summer is just three weeks away, and that means things are starting to wind down for you high school students. Don't worry, though, parents. We're here to make sure things stay in gear until we start up again next fall. On today's show, we're going to touch on a wide range of topics across admission and financial aid by answering listener questions on the air. We've got some great questions from you to answer today. Our hope is that we can cover uh, as many of them as possible before the hour is up. But first, we want to continue our behind-the-scenes series by talking through yet another college admission office. If you've missed previous installments, I would advise you to take a dive back into our archives to learn about Babson, Holy Cross, and the University of Southern California. And of course, we'll have future installments that cover even more schools from all over the country. So it's really nice to see how all of these different institutions approach their college admission process a little bit differently and where a lot of the similarities are. Uh, Today, we're gonna talk about my alma mater, Reed College. I've got on my Reed sweatshirt, uh, and I'm ready to jump right in with my friend and colleague of past and present, Abigail Anderson. Welcome back to the show, Abigail. Thanks, Ian. So there are a lot of us at College Coach who worked at Reed. Um, I think four, in fact, which is somewhat accidental. But our Reed expertise is uh, certainly vast. Um, I worked there from 07 to 2012. Um, and you were there from 2011 to 2014? That is 2015. That's correct. Right on. So we've got almost yeah. eight years of time uh, spanning uh, the Reed College Admission Office. Um, for those listeners who are unfamiliar with Reed, uh, do you want to just give a little introduction to where it is, what it's all about, what, what sort of the, the details of the institution are? In many ways, Reed is a really kind of standard liberal arts college. If you just look at the metrics, you know, it's a school of about 1,400 students, a really beautiful enclosed campus. We're located in a really funky part of southeast Portland um, that's known for great food and music and beautiful um, parks and walking trails. But in many ways, Reed is unlike a lot of other liberal arts colleges and um I know, Ian, you can speak to this very, very well as an uh, alumnus, but Reed has a commitment to, I would say, fierce intellectualism, kind of uncompromisingly academic and uh, intellectual. Um, It is also a school that, unlike other liberal arts colleges, or, for example, the one that I went to in the Northeast, has no varsity athletics. Um, which definitely makes for a different type of social life on campus and absolutely attracts a very specific type of student. Um, yeah. And that would be my 20-second pitch of read, I think. 
Yeah, when you said, uh, in many ways, it's a standard liberal arts college, my hackles went up all of us. I was like, what? Of course. Saying? It's not standard. <laughs> but then you're like, oh, it, in terms of metrics, I was like, okay, I can calm down a little bit. Um, <laughs> Reed is a, a super unusual place. Um, it is. It's a place I think you either love it or you hate it. And and not a lot of students Absolutely. come away from it feeling like, well, I don't know how to feel about that. I think I think it's uh, it's unique in a lot of ways. And and. That's something we certainly talk about when we were um, when we were out recruiting students all over the country is is trying to help them understand read. It also became a big part of our committee process because we were looking for fit with the institution. Um, and you know, I, I had some ideas about how I would look for fit in the application process, and we have some shared colleagues who had different ideas about how they look for fit. What were some of the things that you were looking for through the application? to identify a fit with the institution? The most basic answer would be, does the student who is applying really understand how Reed is different from all those other liberal arts colleges in the U.S.? So we would see a lot of overlapping applications with, um, you know, ostensibly similar liberal arts colleges. But if a student didn't seem to understand that fierce intellectualism or have an understanding of the idea that Reed really is a challenging place, both probably, I would say, personally and academically for its students. Um, I would be worried about the student's success at the institution and their ability to graduate because, as you mentioned, Reed might not be a school for everybody. You know, not everybody who applied would have liked Reed and would have succeeded at Reed. So I was really looking for that deeper understanding beyond, oh, it's a liberal arts college in a really cool city that I'd love to live in. Right. And there was, uh, when I was still working in the admission office, and I know this this changed for you and I want to talk about it, but the the, the essay supplement was very basic. Yes. Why, why read? Um, and so, you know, you get a lot of sort of those essay supplements for other institutions where they say, why do you want to attend or why is this a place for you to continue your education? And at a lot of other schools, they're not looking for you to talk about the basics of the place, like the, um, you know, international uh, studies program or, um, you know, the, the undergraduate research opportunities program at Boston University, those kinds of things. At Reed, we really were looking for students to call out some of the specific kinds of unique experiences there, like Humanities 110 or the Senior Thesis, Mm -hmm. to show that they understood what Reed was all about and that they were interested in those things that made it somewhat peculiar from an academic point of view. Um, But now the the essay prompt is different. And you actually wrote the essay prompt for this essay supplement at Reed, right? Actually, I was there, I think I left right before that change happened. I think I left in about July and as we might end up talking about on the call today, um, many schools change their essay supplements over the summer because that's when offices have the time to do that. So I was right. on, I was just departing when that new essay came into play. Gotcha. But you were part of like conversations around what that prompt was going to be and, and what they were looking for from it, right? Yes and no at the very beginning stages, but I wasn't in the gotcha. final in the final stage. Yeah, correct. Gotcha. Correct. Well, no, I mean, because I'm I'm kind of interested in this for the sake of our listeners because um, when I first started at Reed, working at Reed, the question was just why Reed, and then 
somewhere in the middle of my tenure, we changed it to have a little bit of a preamble about what read was before saying why read. And that was something that I wrote and included in the application. And now it's something different. Um, it's, uh, it's focused on what class you would teach if you could teach any Paideia class. Paideia is this event at Reed where students teach classes of all shapes and sizes about a variety of different topics. Um, and I guess what I'm kind of interested in for students to understand is why do colleges choose supplement, supplemental questions that they choose? What is it that they're looking for? from students. And we can speak about this specifically to read, but I think it's applicable right. to other schools as well. So one of the things that I found really interesting about the shift in the read prompts was that we actually had been asking that question about Paideia, which Ian mentioned is a, a special kind of mini class that can be taught by outsiders, by students, by professors, by administrators. We've been asking that question, what Paideia class would you teach in a smaller pool for a few years. So mm-hmm. we had a, a, a fly-in program for underrepresented students every fall. And for a couple of years in that application process, we had been asking students to answer this question about Paideia. And I remember sitting in the hallway as my colleagues would be reading those applications. I didn't read those applications, but they would be laughing out loud. They'd be going, oh, that's such a cool idea. And you would actually verbally hear feedback to the essays that they were reading answering that question. And there just started to be this really slow conversation about the quality of essays and the type of information we were learning about students from this different question that we weren't always getting in the more generic wide read question. And it took a really long time as I was kind of hesitating answering Ian's first question. It was because I didn't actually see like the final draft of what that essay question, that new question was going to be. I didn't see it get put into place. I think the shift took maybe a year and a half or longer to actually put into place and to become a new part of the read common application supplement. And I I think the thing about the why read was that you got a handful of them every year that were truly fantastic, that like totally got it where you learned all about the student and you were really compelled. And then there were a large number of them that could have been written for any liberal arts college. Maybe it, maybe it was any college in the, in the Northwest or just yeah. any sort of small intellectually focused liberal arts college. And, and those, it was harder to get a sense that that student was really interested in read or that they understood what the fit was. And I think that that sometimes could throw a wrench into an otherwise promising application because it read like something that was written for Kenyon or for Colby or for mm-hmm. Bowdoin. And you kind of say, okay, well, where, where's the specific fit? Um, and at, at places like Reed, that's a really important question that's being answered uh, by the application and the committee process. Absolutely. And I think the Reed question, actually, the new question, the new question about Paideia really benefits applicants to read because it's a leading question. It's a question that makes an applicant, A, write a brand new essay. You can't use your wide Oberlin essay for the read essay. Um, But B, it also makes the student research a really specific part of the read education. And 
I think what's really difficult is when you don't get that leading question and you just get that wide, wide blank college because you, in some instances, can rest on your laurels and not do the deep dive that you need to do to answer the more leading questions. Um, so Reed's new question, I think, creates stronger applicants. And we always talk about... Um, the idea that we were always reading affirmatively and to admit students. And I think that is really shown by the idea that we wanted students to put their best foot forward in their application. So we felt like asking them a better question would help them put a better foot forward. Right. We wanted to give students an opportunity to shine. And I I think it's a much better question than, than the one we had been asking for basically decades um, because it, it does two things. It not only allows that student to shine, but it also is a way for Reed to advertise something about itself that's unusual. So that students mm-hmm. who are sort of like, well, I'll apply to this place, they actually go into research and figure out what Paideia is. And you can think of a lot of schools that have questions like that. Um, you know, the what is a spider question from the University of Richmond sort of comes to mind as, as one example. And there are many, many others where you have to sort of learn about what the question is even asking and why it's attached to the, to meaning at that school. And I, I think that that's, that's a really important thing for students to, to focus in on. Um, this shift kind of happened over time. There were three different deans while I was at Reed in, in five years, and then you worked under two different deans um, wh- while you were in the admission office. And I wonder if you noticed any kind of a dramatic shift in what the application process looked like from one year to the next when you had different leadership, um, especially as it pertains to student applicants. Um, you know, were you admitting totally different sets of students uh, or was it just sort of the, the management style was different under new leadership? So absolutely not. Were we ever admitting completely different types of students under different teams? And I'm sure you had this experience with the three deans you worked with. We actually worked with the same dean for quite a while, but the admission offices, I think there's this idea that they're kind of like the massive cruise ship. They take a very, very long time to turn. And so if you want to change just one component of your application, so for example, the essay question that you ask in the supplement, it might take a year or two years to make that shift. Um, because we can't turn on a dime. Just from a reporting standpoint and using historical data to predict future classes, it would really work against an admission office to all of a sudden change everything that they do overnight. So, no, I didn't see a lot of shift in how we read applications or evaluated applications or certainly not what we were looking for in students or applicants. Um, but yes, there were shifts managerially. Of course, that happens anytime you get a new leader. But those were more organizational than anything right. else. And that's that's part of the reason. You know, you're seeing a lot of schools these days move to test optional policies. Um, Reed hasn't ever hasn't done that yet, and I don't know that they will. And part of that is the just the tracking of test scores over time and their ability to predict success. Uh, in a student's first or second year um, as a student at Reed. I think that that's uh, it's really helpful to have that data. And, and it's hard for admission offices to shift dramatically. So what this means for you as a listener 
is that even if you see some sort of upheaval or big change at a university, that largely the information about applying is going to be consistent year over year. It's very unlikely to change dramatically, um, you know, even with new leadership. Um, let's see. I, I wanted to get to this other question that we had um, that came in from one of our clients a couple of months ago uh, about graduation rate. Um the question was, Reed has a sort of a lower graduation rate than some of its peer institutions, about 80% of students graduate in four years. Um, I just wanted to ask you, how can parents and students use grad rate? What does it tell us? And are there you know, other ways of assessing the sort of success of a school and helping students get through in four years? I think if I learned nothing else from Reed, it's that data can tell so many different stories. And I used to look at grad rate, and I would have seen a grad rate like Reeves, which hovered around 80% of students graduating within four years. I would have seen that in kind of gaps and shied away, and I would have right. thought that was a really low number. But at Reed, that number hides a lot of really interesting stories about why students chose to take time off. And it wasn't just the kind of scary reasons like they couldn't get into the classes they wanted to or they hated the place and they just dropped out of college altogether. It was actually a better, a much more interesting story about the types of students who end up at Reed and the type of true academics that they were. A lot of the students I know who didn't graduate in four years did so because they were pursuing something academic that mm-hmm. they wanted to do outside of the structured Reed curriculum. Um, yep. So that, to me, really taught me to encourage families to look beyond the numbers. And if you see a number like that that's concerning to you, ask somebody in the admission office about it. They've probably been asked before. It's not a scary question for them. Um, So just ask and see what they say. And at some schools, it might be, well, we have, a, we have a problem with getting kids into the 100-level courses that they want to get into or the 200-level courses that they need to graduate. At a place like Reed, you would be getting a very different answer. So I, I, to me, it says, call up the office, shoot them an email, just ask because somebody's asked before you. You can bet on that. Right. So you know, the four guys I lived in a house with uh, my senior year, um, only three of us graduated in four years. So we had a 75% grad rate mm-hmm. in our house in four years. And that's because one of us took a year off to travel around Russia before coming back to write his history thesis on Estonian national identity. Um, so he had this really wonderful experience in the middle of his college career that put off his four-year graduation but allowed him to do something really, really interesting. And I love that um, sort of encouragement, Abigail, of asking the question, figuring out what's behind the numbers, not just relying on sort of external metrics, but but seeing what a school is all about, especially if there are a lot of things that otherwise look very attractive um, about that institution. That is um, all the time we have. There are like so many things we could have talked about. I guess we have uh, <laughs> we have tons of stuff here, but um, thank you for uh, for helping our listeners to understand read a little bit better and, and for sharing your expertise today. Thanks for having me. It's always a lot of fun. Definitely. So uh, when we come back, we'll be answering listener questions. So don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. If you enjoyed that last segment with Abigail, I want to remind you it's never too late to subscribe to this radio show as a podcast. Look us up on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I use this great app called Overcast, uh, and you'll never miss an episode. We have some great segments planned for the remainder of the summer and on into the fall, uh, so there's never been a better time to push that subscribe button. And with that little reminder, we're going to open up our office hours for listener Q&A. Joining me to ask questions and to answer them is my friend all the way over on the East Coast, right near the other Portland, Kathy Ruby. Kathy, welcome back to the show. Hi, Ian. Glad to be back. Of course. So do you want to start or do you want me to start? We've got tons of questions here that we can get through. Um, we both collated them, so we were a little bit prepared. We're not going to get blindsided by anything here. Uh, although it might be Yes. Kind of well, why don't I start? I'll read you your first one. <laughs> that sounds great. All right. So Rajiv asks, he says, the common app is frustrating in the listing of activities. Yes, that's uh, true. It's true. <laughs> it yeah. allows for very few and it has limited space to describe them. My son is involved in many activities and he spends lots of hours in each from robotics to hackathon, soccer, oh, hackathon. varsity. How do you yeah. say that? Hackathon. Hackathon. Oh, there we go. Okay. Must be a typo. Hackathon, yeah. soccer, varsity tennis, debate, part-time work, and more. So how does he prioritize? Do you prioritize by relevance to his intended major or by time spent or by impact? So do you have any advice on how to list them? Is it beneficial to attach a resume at this point? Wow. Yeah. Um, great question. I think this is one area where a lot of students get really 
frustrated and understandably so with the limitations of the common application. Um, you only get 10 activities that you can list. There's an extra five spaces for awards and honors that you can list separately, but you only get those 10 spaces for activities. You have about 50 characters to describe the activity and about 150 characters to describe your engagement with that activity. So it's just a little bit more than what you'd have for a tweet, um, which is not a lot if you're trying to account for experience that you've done over four years of high school. Um, I think one thing that's really important to understand, though, as a student and parent, even if this is frustrating, is that these limitations that are imposed by the Common App are limitations that are requested by the colleges. So colleges have asked the Common App to limit what students can share because they want students to share this information efficiently. Uh, They want to get the highlights of your engagement. They don't want to know that, you know, you went to Key Club for three meetings in your freshman year and never really (laughs) did anything, but were recognized as the associate treasurer or whatever. You know, those are things that are not necessarily going to be meaningful when we talk about, you know, deep engagement, like being on the varsity tennis team for four years or uh, you competing in speech and debate for four years and those kinds of things. So uh, what I want students to focus on here is, first of all, prioritizing which are the uh, the activities that have meant the most to you. Uh, and those are usually the ones where you've been able to make the greatest impact. Uh, and then how do you describe your engagement as efficiently as possible? So you don't need a lot of details about what tennis is. When you're talking mm-hmm. about your varsity tennis engagement, you can just sort of say, here's how I've been engaged in tennis. I've been a captain or I've, you know, helped to um, organize our tournaments. Um, you know, those kinds of things are helpful beyond just the, the fact of your involvement in the program. Uh, as for a resume, most schools are going to discourage the addition of a supplemental resume. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's because, you know, it, it's just usually students are misusing it. And so, you know, there while there are some that maybe could benefit for a resume, those cases are really few and far between. Um, and, and I only want to see a resume if it really is necessary to convey some of the specificities of your engagement. But very rarely is that the case. It's, it's often a, a very special case. Um, but most schools will discourage that. So hopefully... Although, although I would add one qualifier to that. Sure. Sometimes colleges for special scholarship programs, they might have a resume requirement for that, whether it's a community service resume or something along those lines. But it would really be about a scholarship application more than the admission application. There are some schools that will ask for a resume as well. And, and if they do, I think you can feel, feel free to do that. One word of caution is don't just stuff that resume with everything because then as a reader, you just scan it. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas if, there are, if it's only highlights, I'm much more likely to read all of it and take away the, the really impactful stuff. So, you know, the fundamental goal here is share the stuff that really, really matters uh, because it, that comes across more powerfully than having lots of stuff that doesn't necessarily matter. And how many pages should it be? <laughs> the resume? resume? One. <laughs> one. <laughs> Stick to one. Um, yeah, you don't want to go over one. Um, those poor admission officers just shaking their heads <laughs> with the, the amount of stuff they have to read. All right, let me ask you a finance question. Okay. Um, we've got a budget proposal uh, from the president. Um, how will the budget proposal affect student loan borrowers? This is coming from Karen. Uh, she's interested in uh, the interest subsidy, the PSLF. She's just mm-hmm. bullet pointed this stuff, so maybe you know what this is, and different income-based repayment program. Um, thoughts on that, Kathy? 
Okay. Well, the first thing to remember is this is just a budget proposal. It has a long way to go before it turns into law. Um, but essentially, there are there are three parts that really affect student loan borrowers if they go through. And so the first thing is that he is proposing to get rid of the interest subsidy on um, subsidized student loans, which really will affect um, under it will only affect undergraduate students, and that will really only affect undergraduate students who have financial need, because in order to get a subsidized student loan from the government, you have to have financial need at an institution. So, you know, many middle-income and upper-middle-income families only qualify for unsubsidized loans, so it won't affect them as much as lower-income families who um, get a subsidy on their loan, which means that the loan is interest-free while the student's in school. So over the course of four years, that's about that can be a few thousand dollars that it could cost a low-income student. So... Um, that's that's one piece. Um, and then the other is the elimination of the public service loan forgiveness program, which is um, it is not retroactive. So we've been hearing a lot from borrowers who are panicked because they've been planning on the public service loan forgiveness program. And the proposal as it stands now is to eliminate the public service loan forgiveness program, which is a program where you make 10 years of payments while in an income-driven repayment plan while working for a nonprofit or a government agency. And mm-hmm. after you've done that, then the government forgives what's left of your federal loans. Um, but the proposal eliminates it for new borrowers going forward starting in 2018. So it wouldn't affect anybody who has already borrowed and is planning on PSLF. Gotcha. Um, and then finally, uh, there's a proposal to condense all of the different income-based repayment programs or income-driven repayment programs into one that um, that requires that you pay 12.5% of your discretionary income. So discretionary income is defined as uh, your income less 150% of the U.S. poverty guidelines for your household size. So um, there's currently an income-driven repayment plan called Repay, that allows you to pay only 10% of your discretionary income, but then there are also a couple other plans that require you to pay 15 or 20%. Um, so it's sort of a compromise kind of program. But again, gotcha. just a proposal right now. Um, so a lot of different ways that borrowers might be affected, but we'll see what happens going forward. And if you know some of the details here and you're worried about how it might affect you, you can always call Congress, um, you know, your representative, your senators to talk a little bit about these policies and, and how they might affect you. Um, mm-hmm. Because, again, just a proposal. Um, all right, Kathy. Right, my turn. Yeah. <laughs> I always have to remember to read the next question. Okay, so <laughs> Catherine asks, <laughs> I have a senior with serious senioritis. Uh-oh. So what would cause a university to rescind an acceptance based on the end of your senior grades? Is there a risk that the college will change their mind when grades slip in a semester, or do they look at the full year grades, which should still be decent? Which should be decent in the case of this student, but may not be for, for others, um, right? So so mm-hmm. I'll answer this question for Catherine, and then, and then we can sort of draw it out for, for all students, especially juniors that are rising into senior year. Um, it is important that you continue to do well all the way through your end of your senior year. Um, Colleges don't have really uh, strict guidelines where you can look up 
you know, what grades are actually going to affect your chances of getting in. But almost all admission decisions come with a little caveat that say, we expect, you know, your performance to continue at a very high level through the end of your high school career. And if that doesn't happen, um, then colleges are within their right to make a decision to revoke uh, their offer of admission. That's pretty rare. Um, it's something I think you're more likely to see at really highly selective institutions for students that go from all A's down to a C or two or maybe all B's, um, probably not even all B's, but like, you know, something where, where C's are in the mix uh, after mm-hmm. uh, all A performance. Um, you might see it from schools where you got a D in a class or uh, especially if you failed a class because the mm-hmm. expectation when you report certain senior courses is that you're going to pass them. Um, the University of California system and the California state system, which is you know two enormous public school systems, um, only require you to report grades that are lower than a C minus. So D's and F's do need to be re- reported and will trigger a re-evaluation of your application, but as long as you're getting C's or better in all your senior year classes, it's, it's not going to cause a problem. Um, so, you know, I think you're, unless you're applying to a system that really spells it out like the UCs or CSUs do, you've got to try and aim for fairly consistent performance, which means if you're all A's, you want to be mostly A's, maybe a couple B's. You want to really avoid those C's as much as you can. Um, And you do need to report them to colleges. Most colleges won't allow you to actually register for classes until um, you give them your final transcript. So this is not something you're going to be able to hide as a senior, even if the uh, decision has already been made. Okay. So stay on it. Stay on it, kids. Stay on it. That's right. Don't give up. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Okay, we've got another one. This one's from Bob. I have some money saved in a 529 for my son, but it's only enough to cover about one year of cost. Should I just spend it all for his first year to put off borrowing for as long as possible? Okay, we get this question very frequently um, because it's hard to know what what to do. And and really, everyone, people can make different decisions for different reasons, um, and there's Mm -hmm. no one right answer to this question. So, um, so I guess, but there's a few things to know about that 529 plan and um, whether or not you should spend it all down or or try to spread it out over four years. Um, mm-hmm. So, of course, the 529 plan is restricted. The earnings are tax-free as long as you use the money for qualified expenses for your student. So you want to make sure that you use up the money. Um, that's the first thing. But in terms of this idea that you want to put off borrowing for as long as you can, um, that's not necessarily going to save you money. So let, if we make the assumption that um, if you need to borrow, if you know ahead of time that you're going to need to borrow um, to cover what's left after the 529 plan, borrowing later, if you're still going to take 10 years to pay it back, doesn't necessarily save you any money because whether you borrow it today and pay it back over 10 years or borrow it next year and pay it back over 10 years, you're going to pay the same amount unless the interest rates are different. So it is important to know that um, interest rates on federal student loans are set annually. So every July 1st, the the rate is set for loans borrowed in the upcoming year. So actually, if you think interest rates may go up in future years, then maybe you do want to borrow now while interest rates are somewhat lower, although they did just go up for next year. Um, they went 
the, the student loan rate went from 3.76 to 4.45 percent. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah, so so it may make sense to borrow um, early um, while interest rates are lower if you think rates are going to go up over the course of the next four years. Um, the other important thing to know about that is that uh, students are eligible to borrow uh, 5500 in their first year, 6500 in the second year, and then 7500 each year in the junior and senior year. And so if you know you want your student to borrow that $27,000 over four years, you do have to have your student borrow in the first year um, because mm. you can't get to the junior year and then say, oh, I didn't borrow the 5500 and 6500 I'd like them now um, because they're per year limits. So if you know you need the 27000 make sure you're borrowing right from the beginning for that. Um, and then after that, it's just personal preference. Um, the 529 plan is considered a parent asset on the financial aid application. So spending it down usually doesn't make that much difference in your financial aid eligibility. So that's not usually a compelling argument for spending it down. Is there a reason you would keep your money in your 529 longer because its earnings are are really good if you're in a good 529? Is that something you might consider? You know, that, or? that could happen. Um, but usually when if, if you're in a 529 plan and you're using one of the age-based options, Usually by the time your child is headed off to college, um, the money's in some pretty conservative investments at that point. That's right. Um, so there's probably not a huge rate of return. Um, but the other thing to check is can you, if you're in a state where you get a state tax deduction for contributing to your 529 plan, um, check to see if that can continue while your child's in college um, and while you're withdrawing money. Because if you can continue getting that state tax deduction, that's not a bad idea either. No kidding. I was going off of my four and three year old. We're getting pretty good earnings, but I guess you're right. The age based deduction is going to change that. <laughs> I don't think 17 year olds are getting program. as good no, earnings. Well, not as good. maybe they are. I mean, for some people, if they're if they're choosing their investments and they they are very risk tolerant, maybe they are. That's right. Maybe they have a lot of uh, confidence right now. <laughs> we had a, a follow up question from Amin, which was the what is the interest rate on government student loans? It sounded like you answered that in that question. It's like 4.4 percent. Yeah, 4.45% for the 17-18 uh, school year. And, and just to clarify, that's a fixed interest rate. So it's oh, nice. so when your student goes to college over the course of four years, they could have four different fixed interest rates, um, but they'll all be fixed. Um, the gotcha. federal parent loan went from 6.31% uh, for last year's loans to 7% for next year. So and climbing. It's yeah, going up. climbing. Which isn't surprising, but it, they did climb. Been low for so long. I, th I think this is a good spot for us to take a break, but if you hold tight, I think we can answer a few more questions in the next segment. Does that sound good? Yes, sounds great. All right, awesome. Don't go away, folks. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, 
how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. We're going to continue our question and answer segment with Kathy Ruby. And in the interest of time, no big preamble, just going to jump right back into the questions. Um, Kathy, where do we leave off on my side of things? All right. For you, your next question comes from James. And he says, my daughter, Emma, is now finishing 10th grade. We're wondering when is the best time to start practicing for the ACT and SAT? Thank you, he says. <laughs> oh, that's nice of him. Thanks, thanks for your question, James, and for listening. Um, so, okay, Emma's finishing 10th grade right now. Um, I think that you've usually the way that I talk through this with families is I try and trace backward from our goal. Um, and I was listening to this radio show, I think about three years ago and Kira was on the show and was talking with Beth about, uh, objectives for testing. And she said she wants all of her students to be done with their standardized testing by the summer before their senior year. So that's about a year from now, James. And, th- and that means that you've got about a year to do all of the work that Emma needs to do to get herself ready, to sit for multiple exams if necessary, and to get the scores that she wants to get. Now, the reason we try and get all of our testing done before the summer is so that we have a good sense of how competitive a student is going to be for various institutions, um, and so that we can take some of the stress out of testing in the fall. Um, the earliest fall test dates are August and September, and, and that really starts to bleed into application season. So if we can keep it sort of confined to junior year, that's a really good idea. Um, the last test dates are in June. Um, most students are going to use June for subject tests if mm-hmm. subject tests are applicable to their profile. Um, but that still leaves them around three or four test dates just in the spring of junior year for them to be able to take the exam. Um, And I don't like students to hurry to take the SAT or ACT um, early in the fall of their junior year unless they feel like they're really going to be ready for those exams. And the reason is you don't get any extra points for taking it sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. You want to get the best score you can get um, at the time you can get it. 
And for a lot of students, taking a challenging English class in their 11th grade is going to help with their reading comprehension. Um, taking a math class, especially if, the, if they're in something like pre-calc or trig or honors pre-calc, that's going to help them with their understanding of math concepts for the math sections of those exams. So you want to sort of take a look at where you are in terms of your curriculum and how that curriculum might be able to help you over the course of the fall without additional test prep. Mm-hmm. So usually I, I want students to take exams around December, January, February in their 11th grade year. That tends to be a really great time to do it. There are, of course, exceptions to this, um, but that's that's what I really want to look for. That is going to mean in some cases that your test prep, if you're working with a company or a tutor, uh, is going to be happening alongside academic work in 11th grade. And you may want to consider how that workload is going to affect your student and, and maybe pushing it up to the summer is helpful as well. So, um, but for the most part, I would say taking them in, in late winter, early uh, next year is, is the best time for, for Emma. Great. Awesome. So we've switched to a student who's just starting college this fall, um, mm-hmm. Jesse's, Jesse's son. Jesse asks, uh, my son was awarded a federal student loan and starting college this fall. We accepted it. But do we have to do anything else to get the money to come in? Yes, you do. Uh, and oh, and the good. college is probably communicating this to the student through their information system. So they've probably they're probably going to start sending reminders. Um, so there's a little more paperwork that has to happen in this first year in order for a federal student loan to get approved and dispersed. So <clears throat> what has to happen is that Jesse's son has to go to the website called studentloans.gov, so www.studentloans.gov, and he'll sign into that website using his FSA ID, so his federal student aid ID, which was the username and password that you use to complete his FAFSA, but make sure it's his FSA ID that that he signs in with. Um, Mm -hmm. And he should be the one doing this. It's tempting as parents to do this for him, but it really should be his process. Um, In the old days, he would have had to sign something. And in today's world, he's going to sign into a website. So once he's in studentloans.gov, he'll complete what's called a master promissory note for the federal direct student loan. And essentially what it does is it sets up his line of credit for the next four years or however long he's in school. And so it's actually a fairly simple form. He'll have to provide his name and address, and then he'll have to provide two references. Um, The first reference is an adult. uh, I'm sorry, the first reference is his parent. um, And then the second reference is another adult who doesn't live in his household. Um, And the purpose of those references is so that if someday he doesn't repay the federal student loan, the government can call that person and say, hey, where's, where is he? <laughs> he owes money on his student loan. But being a reference on the application, important to know for a parent, it doesn't make you liable for the loan in any way. It's just being a reference. Okay. Um, and then he signs the promissory note with his FSA ID. Um, and then after that, he'll be sent to an entrance counseling session, which is online. And essentially, they'll tell him a bunch of information about the loan and that it is a loan and that it has to be repaid. And they'll give him some information about the terms of the loan um, and some terms and definitions for him to understand. And then he'll have to take a quiz as he goes. And then once he passes the quiz, um, his school is notified. And then they can go ahead and approve the loan. 
So he has to do the promissory note and the online entrance counseling session, and in the process, they'll ask him what school he's attending, and then the school will be notified electronically, and then they'll approve the loan. Um, So the good news is in in subsequent years, all you have to do to get a federal student loan is to complete the FAFSA, and then the college offers you the loan, and then you accept it, and then they can go ahead and approve it. So the MPN, or the Master Promissory Note, and the Entrance Counseling only happens in the first year. Is, Is that class that they have to take, is that something that's useful and interesting, or is it more like... You know, you got a ticket and you have to go to driving school and so you're fast forwarding through all the information. (laughs) It's a fairly easy quiz. Like if you read the information they're giving you, you'll find the answer right there. Um, So it's fairly straightforward. It's not fascinating material, but it is, I think it is good for the student to do it themselves because they should recognize that this is a loan that they have to repay um, someday and, and that it does give them some good information there. Cool. Okay. Good. And, and actually, so oh, one video. more thing, in terms of timing, I mean, the colleges really want you to do that in the June timeframe, June or July timeframe. Oh, good. That's helpful. Good. All right. Your next question is, let's see, this is from, this is from George. Um, okay. He says, we're planning on some summer vacations, and we're wondering whether it's a good idea to see colleges at this time of year when nobody's on campus. So how would you suggest we approach a college visit in the summer months? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's it's not ideal. Uh, if you have an opportunity to see a college during the academic year, that's that's what I would prefer. Um, but you know, you don't you don't necessarily have that flexibility because you've got um, high school classes, you've got expectations at your workplace. Um, you know, summer tends to be a time that's a little bit flexible, and so you can go go see a campus. I think if you're going to visit a campus during the summer. You want to try and talk to as many students as you can while you're there. There are usually student workers in the admission office that are tour guides or summer interns. Uh, Try and have conversations with them such that you can get a really diverse perspective on the institution. Um, try and ask questions about what life is like during the academic year. Um, so you might take it all in and say, wow, this is really beautiful. It's so green. The weather is perfect. Um, you know, that's how it feels in Portland. When you go and visit Reed during the summer, we would give people popsicles on the tour. It's great. Like it looks wonderful. It also rains a lot during the fall and the spring. Um, and it's just a totally different vibe on campus. Um, and knowing that and expecting that difference, I think is really important. So you always want to take those summer, um, you know, summer visits with, with sort of a grain of salt. Um, it is important when you are visiting, especially if you're a rising junior or senior, to check in somehow, to register for the visit, to let them know that you're there. A lot of schools track interest. And so wandering around campus might feel sufficient to you, um, but you want colleges to know that you took the time to do that because that will come back favorably in the application process later on for especially smaller schools uh, that track that kind of thing. Um, summer's also a really great time to do an interview on campus. Um, if you really like a school, um, and you want to, you know, have an interview be a part of your process, um, usually summer before senior year is when they start offering interviews for students. And, 
you know, that's a great way to practice a little bit to have that interview experience. It's also a way to learn a little bit more about the school from your interviewer. You know, you might have mm-hmm. a student tour guide and an intern, and then you might have an admission officer who conducts the interview. And that's a third point of contact where you can learn about the institution. So um, I think summer can be really, really useful. You just have to understand that it's not exactly what life is going to be like <laughs> during the academic year, which is okay. <laughs> Good to know. Uh, this question, uh, from Tara, um, it's an interesting one. I'm kind of curious about it myself. So it says, my son is waiting to hear about some scholarships from our local community. Do we have to tell the college if he gets one and how will that affect his financial aid award? Oh, that's a, that's a pretty popular question this time of year. Um, so this, first, this is not unusual that many local scholarships and uh, private kinds of scholarships often don't notify students until graduation time. Um, and, and by this time, you've already made your decision about where you're going to enroll based on a financial aid package that's been offered. Um, so the first question, do we have to tell the college if he gets one? Yes, you do. Um, if you read the terms of your award and however the college gave that to you, if they mailed it to you or if they sent you to a website, um, whatever it was, if you read the terms of that award, it's very I mean, it's 99% likely that the college somewhere in there told you that if you receive a scholarship from a private source that you have to tell them. Um, And the reason for that is that the college is required to make adjustments um, based on your federal financial need. Um, So the the federal government says to colleges, yes, you have to track, you have to know about these, if you know about these other resources, you have to fit them into a need-based financial aid package. So colleges have to follow some federal rules when they're doing that, but they also establish institutional rules when they do that about how those outside scholarships will affect any institutional dollars that that you've been awarded. Now, the good news is that most of the time, um, outside scholarships are either added to the award, um, and sometimes they're used to replace a contribution that the college might be expecting from the student for the summer, or sometimes they're just added because they can be. Um, if a college has to reduce something, usually the first thing they'll reduce will be a student loan and maybe a student work award. Um, and, and then finally, a college might reduce need-based grant that they've been, that a student has been awarded. Um, and generally speaking, most colleges will not touch a merit-based scholarship once it's been awarded. So if, if your student has received a merit-based scholarship, receiving an outside scholarship generally will not impact that amount. Mm. But if okay. the student's receiving a need-based grant from an institution, um, then it's possible it might be affected. But I would say, in general, um, most of the time, uh, it's not a dollar-for-dollar dollar decrease. So in other words, usually the college will say, okay, first we'll replace your summer contribution, and then we'll replace, then we'll take away student loans. And, it, and in that case, what it means is we'll take away the subsidized student loan we offered, but we'll offer you an unsubsidized loan instead because that's not based on need. Um, and then after that, we might impact work-study, um, and then after that, we might take away some of your need-based grants. So policies can differ by college. So also mm-hmm. read the terms of the award to see what they say about their outside scholarship policy. But I would say what I, what I tell families always is it's never going to be a dollar-for-dollar dollar swap. You're always better off when you find these outside scholarships. It will make college more affordable, um, 
I understood the process completely, and I made my co- my kids look for private scholarships. So I knew that okay. it was worth it. So um, always worth it to find those private scholarships, um, but check with the college to see how it might impact the award. And if it's going to have a significant impact, you might even, and if you're, you're bringing in a lot of private scholarships, maybe you're one of those people who found quite a few of them, um, think about spreading some of the awards out over four years. So you can always ask a donor if they can delay dispersing an award until the next year when you might need it more. So cool. get creative in that way. Thanks. I think we have time for one more quick one. All right. So let's see. Um, hmm. Uh, here's Okay, I think this is a quick one. Because of time management, this is from Reggie, Marcus didn't take the end-of-year AP test for two of his AP Lit and AP Macroeconomics classes. He's taken AP tests for eight other AP classes during his high wow. school. Are the AP okay. tests used only for credits, or will it be a concern post-admission or acceptance? That is a quick one. Uh, so, Reggie, taking... The AP exam is certainly not a requirement from the point of view of a college. It's, it's used only for credit. Um, and so you don't have to worry about sitting for those exams if you don't have time to do so. Uh, colleges in the U.S., at least, are looking only at the performance that you have in the class. Colleges abroad sometimes do care about the results. And you'll know that if you apply to, say, Cambridge or Oxford and you get accepted, you'll usually be conditionally accepted based on an expectation of a certain score on the AP exam. And of course, you'll take it in that case. But for the sake of American schools, it, it doesn't really matter. And actually, when I was a senior, once I knew I was going to read, I didn't bother <laughs> to sit for the AP exams anymore because of Reed's policy on AP credit and didn't think it would be an advantage to me. So, um, and it wasn't. So, uh, it, it doesn't hurt you at all. You had a mild uh, case of senioritis, it sounds that's like. That's right. Not a mild one, though. I still got good grades. So, <laughs> come on, Kathy. Uh, that's all the time we have for today, folks. Uh, we got through as many questions as we could this week. So we hope we'll continue to submit even more to gettinginvoiceamerica at gmail.com. We use your feedback to build so many of our segments, so keep them coming. And thank you, Kathy, for your awesomeness, as always. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. Our show next week will peel back the curtain at the Tufts Admission Office with our two terrific colleagues, Becky Leikling and Karen Lyons. And I understand Kathy will be back to talk about how to prepare financially for a semester abroad. So get ready for that, Kathy. Yeah, uh, thanks for the reminder. <laughs> of course. We've got peonies and roses in bloom in our front yard, poppies and stargazer lilies in the back. Hope this late spring is as beautiful for you wherever you are. Have a terrific week. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.